This is Dean Hess, Editor of Respiratory Care. Welcome to the January 2010 Respiratory Care Podcast. We begin the 55th volume of Respiratory Care with the papers from the 44th Journal Conference entitled Respiratory Care Controversies 2. As pointed out by co-chairs Neil McIntyre and Richard Branson in their foreword, the evidence base for many respiratory care diagnosis and management strategies is often incomplete and thus open to dispute. To address this, a unique pro-con format was used to frame controversial clinical questions. The presenters were asked to explore the extremes of each clinical question and then work towards a common ground. The papers that result from these presentations should prove clinically useful for the readers of the journal as they explore these clinical questions in their own practice. Sarah Forge will read the abstracts and I will return with some commentary. We begin with the paper, Is There a Role for Screening Spirometry? by McIntyre and Selecki. In obstructive lung disease, a characteristic change in spirometry is a reduction in the FEV1 with respect to the vital capacity. Moreover, the severity of the obstruction can be graded by referencing spirometric measurements to age, sex, and height, predicted normal values. Spirometry, however, should be considered a medical test and not simply a vital sign that anyone can perform. Indeed, both technical issues and tester skills can profoundly affect the results and interpretations. Properly done spirometry can guide therapies and predict outcomes, but using spirometry to screen for obstructive lung disease in asymptomatic populations can be problematic, and the effects of screening spirometry on outcomes have yet to be determined. The value of spirometry is increased when it is of good quality, is interpreted properly, and is used in high-risk populations as a case-finding rather than a screening tool. Next is a paper by Sessler and Gay. Are corticosteroids useful in late-stage acute respiratory distress syndrome? The acute respiratory distress syndrome is characterized by intense inflammation and alveolar capillary disruption that can progress to a state of unresolving inflammation and disordered fibrosis, referred to as fibroproliferative, late-stage, or persistent ARDS. These pathophysiologic features may be responsive to corticosteroids, but early high-dose, short-duration therapy was proven ineffective. More recently, several small and one moderate-sized multicenter randomized controlled trial investigated low-to-moderate-dose prolonged corticosteroid treatment. The randomized controlled trial and meta-analysis consistently demonstrated improved oxygenation and shorter duration of mechanical ventilation with methylprednisone. The largest randomized controlled trial also revealed less pneumonia and shock and ICU stay, but more cases of severe myoneuropathy with methylprednisone. There were virtually identical 60-day and 180-day mortality rates for methylprednisone and placebo in the largest randomized controlled trial. Subgroup analysis of that study showed significantly higher mortality with methylprednisone than with placebo when enrollment occurred greater than 13 days after onset of ARDS, but small sample size and differences in subject characteristics probably confound those results. 
Most meta-analyses demonstrated trends towards better survival with methylprednisone, and when restricted to patients enrolled in randomized controlled trials who received prolonged administration of methylprednisone that was initiated within the first 14 days of ARDS, one meta-analysis demonstrated better survival with corticosteroids. Importantly, the aforementioned studies have methodological limitations, and the number of subjects enrolled was small. Experts differ in their recommendations regarding corticosteroids for late-stage ARDS, although one consensus group supported a weak recommendation of low to moderate-dose corticosteroids for ARDS of less than 14 days duration. If corticosteroids are administered, infection surveillance, avoidance of neuromuscular blockers, and gradual taper of corticosteroids are recommended. Should patients be able to follow commands prior to extubation is by King, Moores, and Epstein. The determination of optimal timing of liberation from mechanical ventilation requires a thorough assessment of multiple variables that can result in extubation failure. It is estimated that 5 to 20 percent of extubations fail. Traditional weaning parameters fail to predict extubation failure accurately, and attention has thus turned to improvements in extubation decision-making through assessment of elements that may result in inability to protect the airway, such as excessive respiratory secretions, inadequate cough, and depressed mental status. Extubation is particularly controversial in patients with depressed mental status and inability to follow commands. When looking at univariate analyses, the reported studies are relatively evenly divided among those that did and did not find that inability to follow commands increases the risk of extubation failure. In addition, although extubation failure is a risk factor for poor overall outcome in heterogeneous populations, its impact on the patient failing with neurologic dysfunction has not been adequately determined. One limiting factor in all reported studies is how inability to follow commands is defined. The majority of studies use the Glasgow Coma Score, but this is difficult to determine in the intubated patient. Moreover, using the cutoff or Glasgow Coma Score greater than or equal to 8, favored by many authors, is questionable, as some patients with higher scores may be unable to follow commands. Currently, it is agreed that many patients who are unable to follow commands but have the ability to clear pulmonary secretions can be safely extubated. A prospective randomized trial using a more specific definition of following commands would certainly help remove some of the uncertainty in this patient population. Next, we have the paper, Are Sleep Studies Appropriately Done in the Home? by Gay and Selecki. For many years, the greatest barrier to the diagnosis and treatment of obstructive sleep apnea, or OSA, was recognizing the disease. That obstacle is now fading as more physicians of all types are aware of the high prevalence of OSA and the consequences of untreated OSA. Sleep laboratory polysomnography has long been considered the accepted standard for OSA diagnosis and has become a lucrative practice. This unfortunately led to concentration on diagnosis rather than management of OSA. 
Although several brands of portable polysomnograph have been approved for home polysomnography, obstacles to reimbursement, primarily from government but also from private payers, have prevented widespread home polysomnography. Over the last two decades, many scientific studies have supported a strong correlation between the findings from home polysomnography and sleep laboratory polysomnography. However, limited data are available from good outcomes-oriented studies, so controversy surrounds home polysomnography in the diagnosis of OSA. The authors review the evidence and debate whether sleep studies are appropriately done in the home. Should tracheostomy be performed as early as 72 hours in patients requiring prolonged mechanical ventilation is by Durbin, Perkins, and Morse. Advances in treating the critically ill have resulted in more patients requiring prolonged airway intubation and respiratory support. If intubation is projected to be longer than several weeks, tracheostomy is often recommended. Tracheostomy offers the potential benefits of improved patient comfort, the ability to communicate, opportunity for oral feeding, and easier, safer nursing care. In addition, less need for sedation and lower airway resistance than through an endotracheal tube may facilitate the weaning process and shorten intensive care unit and hospital stay. By preventing microaspiration of secretions, tracheostomy might reduce ventilator-associated pneumonia. There is controversy, however, over the optimal timing of the procedure. While there have been many randomized controlled trials on tracheostomy timing, most were insufficiently powered to detect important differences, and systematic reviews and meta-analyses are limited by the heterogeneity of the primary studies. Based on the available data, the authors think it is reasonable to perform early tracheostomy in all patients projected to require prolonged mechanical ventilation. Unfortunately, identifying those patients can be difficult, and for many patient populations, we lack the necessary tools to predict prolonged ventilation. The authors propose an early tracheostomy decision algorithm. The final paper this month is by Fessler and Talmore. Its title is, Should Prone Positioning Be Routinely Used for Lung Protection During Mechanical Ventilation? Prone positioning has been known for decades to improve oxygenation in animals with acute lung injury and in most patients with ARDS. The mechanisms of this improvement include a more uniform pleural pressure gradient, a smaller volume of lung compressed by the heart, and more uniform and better matched ventilation and perfusion. Prone positioning has an established niche as an intervention to improve gas exchange in patients with severe hypoxemia refractory to standard ventilatory manipulations. Because the lung may be more uniformly recruited and the stress of mechanical ventilation better distributed, prone positioning has also been proposed as a form of lung protective ventilation. However, several randomized trials have failed to show improvements in clinical outcomes of ARDS patients other than consistently better oxygenation. Because each of these trials had design problems or early termination, prone positioning remains a rescue therapy for patients with acute lung injury or ARDS.
I'm back with some commentary on this month's issue. Healthcare screening for disease and the associated controversies are well known by anyone who reads a newspaper, watches the daily news on television, or listens to news on the radio. Thus, it is timely that this conference begins with McIntyre and Selecki addressing the question, is there a role for screening spirometry? There is little controversy that spirometry is needed to diagnose COPD. In addition, the severity of COPD is typically graded on the basis of spirometry results. One of the more important points made in this paper is that spirometry should be considered a medical test and not simply a vital sign that anyone can perform. The authors correctly conclude that the value of spirometry is increased when it is used in high-risk populations as a case-finding rather than a screening tool. A very controversial topic that is discussed in the intensive care unit is whether or not steroids should be used. This is addressed by Sessler and Gay, who deal with the question, are corticosteroids useful in late-stage ARDS? As they note, the pathophysiologic features of ARDS may be responsive to corticosteroids, but early, high-dose, short-term therapy has proven ineffective. Randomized controlled trials have demonstrated improved oxygenation and shorter duration of mechanical ventilation with methylprednisolone. Although these physiologic improvements are attractive, the more important question is whether or not this translates to a survival benefit. There is virtually identical 60-day and 180-day mortality rates for methylprednisolone and placebo in the largest randomized controlled trial. Nonetheless, experts differ in their recommendations regarding corticosteroids for late-stage ARDS. If corticosteroids are administered, the authors wisely recommend infection surveillance, avoidance of neuromuscular blockers, and gradual taper of corticosteroids. The determination of optimal timing of extubation requires a thorough assessment of many clinical variables. Should patients be able to follow commands prior to extubation? Even with the best judgment, 5 to 20% of extubations fail and require reintubation. The timing of extubation is particularly controversial in patients with depressed mental status and inability to follow commands. This is debated on a regular basis in the ICU. As King, Morris, and Epstein indicate, although extubation failure is a risk factor for poor overall outcome in heterogeneous populations, its impact on the patient failing with neurologic dysfunction has not been adequately determined. The authors recommend that many patients who are unable to follow commands but have an ability to clear pulmonary secretions can be safely extubated. They also make an important plea for a randomized controlled trial using a specific definition of following commands to help remove the uncertainty of extubation timing in this patient population. The high prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea, or OSA, and the consequences of untreated OSA have received much attention in recent years. This has resulted in increased referrals of patients for sleep laboratory polysomnography, which has become a lucrative practice. In addition, portable devices have been approved for home polysomnography, but are sleep studies appropriately done in the home? This controversial topic is addressed by Gay and Selecki. Although many studies have supported a strong correlation between the findings from home polysomnography and sleep laboratory polysomnography, Limited data are available from outcomes-oriented studies. 
Until the results of such studies are reported, controversy will continue to surround home polysomnography in the diagnosis of OSA. Another topic debated daily in the ICU is the correct timing of tracheostomy. Should tracheostomy be performed as early as 72 hours in patients requiring prolonged mechanical ventilation? This question is addressed by Durbin, Perkins, and Morris. If intubation is projected to be longer than several weeks, tracheostomy is often recommended. But, as the authors point out, while there have been many randomized controlled trials on timing of tracheostomy, most were insufficiently powered to detect important differences. The authors recommend early tracheostomy in all patients projected to require prolonged mechanical ventilation. There is little debate around this recommendation, but unfortunately it is difficult to identify such patients with precision. Based on their review of the literature, the authors propose an early tracheostomy decision algorithm. This algorithm may prove useful, but ideally this should be validated in a clinical study. Prone positioning is one of the rescue therapies considered in patients with ARDS and refractory hypoxemia. It is accepted that prone positioning can improve gas exchange in patients with severe hypoxemia refractory to standard ventilatory manipulations. But, should prone positioning be routinely used for lung protection during mechanical ventilation? This question is addressed by Fessler and Talmor. There are theoretical reasons why prone positioning may be a form of lung protective ventilation. For example, alveolar recruitment may be more uniform and the stress of mechanical ventilation better distributed with prone position. However, randomized controlled trials of prone positioning have failed to show improvements in survival of patients with ARDS. Whether or not prone positioning should be used as a rescue therapy for patients with severe ARDS remains controversial. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.